I said, this has just been, yeah, this has just been really difficult. So, hey, Isaiah, good to see you. Welcome back. You on leave? Yeah, yeah? that's good. So back from the army. And you're loving it, right? Yeah, yeah. See, I told you to join the Air Force, but do you listen to me? No. I would never say I told you so, ever. But, but you can infer what you want from that. So, hey, somebody uh, told me that uh, either Bill Billen had a birthday, or is having a birthday, or today's your birthday. Which one is it? It's all this week. It's all this week. Oh, Steve Golden has a birthday too? Okay. So is it, is it actually today? today? It's today. Okay. So I will not sing happy birthday to you. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure that violates the Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Chris Helt would be able to tell you whether that's true or not. The way I sing, it would. So, okay. Hey, it's good to be with everybody. Um, hey, you've probably all heard the phrase, politics ruins everything, right? You may have even said that. I know that I've said that more than a few times over the past few years. And so politics used to be confined to certain areas of life, but it seems like seems recently, but maybe it's been in the last decade, it's kind of like an oil spill, and it just keeps expanding and expanding and expanding and expanding, until now it seems like it just, it taints everything, it taints almost every area of life, and it's just politics is, is this slick, oily, nasty substance that just isn't everywhere. Sports and entertainment, right, are, are tainted by politics. We get multimillionaire athletes and celebrities that want to weigh in on every topic and far outside their expertise. And so you get lectured um, on things of how you should act or what you should believe. You can't go to the movies without being lectured, right? Um, I think one of the reasons that the, the new Top Gun movie did so well, and I'm not recommending the movie. Uh, it was a good movie, but I can't unqualifiedly recommend it. I think one of the reasons it did so well was that it just was entertainment. So you go in, you get entertained, highly entertained for a couple of hours, and then you walk out. You didn't feel bad about yourself. You didn't feel like you were being talked down to. It was just fun, right? Which is what you go to the movies for, is to have fun. Uh, demographics is political. So demographers will tell you that people are moving to areas where there are like-minded people. They want to be with people that think like them. Uh, and so they don't want to live in areas where there's a diversity of political opinion. And demographers will tell you that very few people have any friends or anybody in their circle that doesn't think differently than them, right? So think Republicans and Democrats. Republicans don't have Democratic friends. Democrats don't have Republican friends. Dating is political. Right? You wouldn't think dating would be political. You'd think dating would be biological, which is what it's always been. But it's political now. So surveys show that people don't want to date somebody of a different political persuasion. Okay? And, and dating apps in free market capitalist society that we live in have responded. 
And so they institute filters so that whatever your political persuasion is, let's just say you're progressive for the sake of argument, you'll never match on somebody that's a conservative. So you won't even get the opportunity to meet that person. So there's almost no area left that is not tainted by politics. And the church, which you would hope would be free from this, is unfortunately not free from this. So we've had our own issues with this. We've just come out of a pandemic, which revealed some things about uh, the church and politics. Uh, the riots that we've had have revealed some things about church and politics. So there's almost no area where you can escape it. And as I said last week, the mission of the church is not cultural renovation, it's not politics, but that's the world we live in. And so we need to be able to figure out how do we navigate this new, this new normal, right? How do, we, how do we exist and how do we function as a church which is supposed to make disciples in this toxic environment. And so that's what I want to talk about today. So we're in the second of four messages. Uh, you guys came back. Thank you for coming back. You've got two more weeks of me. And uh, so last week we talked about what does it look like for the church to be in exile. And we said the church is in cultural exile because the culture has definitely shifted away from the world that we have always known. And so we looked at what does it look like? How do we function in that, in that environment? And today I want to talk about political engagement. Now, I, has, I told you earlier, it was like wrestling an oil-covered octopus, right? And I hesitated to even bring this subject up uh, because, one, politics, even among friends, can be divisive. And there's enough stuff to divide us, and I don't want to have anything to do with division. Two, in a 30 or 40 minute talk, there are things that I'm not gonna cover that maybe you wish I had. And there are things that I'm gonna cover that maybe you wish I hadn't. And so it's just almost impossible to cover the gamut of this subject. And so I didn't wanna do it for that reason. And the last reason I hesitated was because honestly, in the grand scheme of things, politics is not that important. And it is really not as important as we make it out to be a lot of times. And so I hesitated to, to give time to something that it really has no eternal value. But as I said, this is, this is the world we live in. And so if we're gonna move forward, we're gonna move forward. Last week I said we wanna move forward in hope and in joy and in peace and we want to do that. We want to focus on making disciples. So we need to figure out how do we navigate this new environment. We're not going to be breaking any new ground today. Hopefully the things I'm telling you and, and talking to you about are familiar to you. But it's good to remind ourselves on occasion of truth, right? That's one of the reasons that uh, the Old Testament God spent so much time telling the Israelites, remember, 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 because we're forgetful people, just like they were. And it's easy to forget these things. So I want to lay a foundation, which I'm hoping will help us think through this topic biblically. So I want to start at the very beginning, as Julie Andrews says, right, which is a very good place to start. Again, I'm not going to sing, right? I'm not going to sing. Um, and so where does government get its authority? 
Where does government get its authority? Where does, where does government authority come from? Somebody said the people, right? Okay, well, that's what, the, that's what the Declaration of Independence says. Okay, the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, right? Maybe some of you have memorized those words. They're pretty powerful words, right? Uh, well, this makes sense when you think of the colonies and the environment that they came out of. Came out of a monarchy. George III could not have cared less about the consent of the governed or the ruled. And so the founders wanted to make sure that they had a good foundation for government. From a biblical standpoint, this misses the mark. As eloquent as these words are, as important to the, as they are to us as Americans, they miss the mark. So governments don't derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Instead, all governments derive their authority and their power from God. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right, for saying that. But we sometimes forget that. We sometimes forget that. This is what Paul says in Romans 13, which is arguably the go-to text when you're talking about church and government. Paul says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. There's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So not only... God as the supreme authority, his, his authority extends everywhere in heaven and earth. Whether that's acknowledged or not is immaterial. God has absolute authority over everything. Not only that, but God institutes, whatever authority exists, God instituted it. Okay, this has implications for us because if you don't like the current administration, and, and many of us do not, and then our beef is ultimately with who? It's ultimately with God. Our beef is ultimately with God. It's not with voters. It's not with the Electoral College. It's not with anything else. It's with God. Because voters and all this other stuff are the means that God used to exercise his sovereign will to put in place the government that we're under right now. Okay. Now, that may not be a happy thought to anybody because you guys look like I just killed your dog. <laughs> I don't know what you guys, you guys look any better in the addition or are you the same? Yeah, so I just ran over your dog a few times. That shouldn't, be, that shouldn't be something that causes us sadness, right? That should be causing us hope. It should cause us hope because we know that God never fails to act in ways that are ultimately to the benefit of his people. Right? God is for us. God is not against us. And so God never, ever, ever fails to do what is ultimately for the, be the best for his people. Now, that may be painful, but we can take comfort in knowing that there is a sovereign God behind everything that is happening, that nothing happens outside God's control. That should bring us great comfort. 
Okay, I want to briefly talk about what government should do uh, because that has implications for how we interact with it as well. So what is government's proper role? What is it that God ordained governments to do? Well, Paul is going to tell us in verses 3 and 4. He says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The Apostle Peter says in his epistle, he says something similar. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So you take those two verses and and government has a God-ordained mandate to execute justice on behalf of its citizens, to protect and preserve the life of its citizens. And Paul says it bears the sword for that reason. So government has the authority to take life in order to protect the lives of its citizens. And a secondary secondary function is to approve what is good and commend those that do it. So that's, that's essentially it. That's essentially the baseline function of government. Promote, maintain peace, punish wrongdoing, and promote, approve, and approve of the good. Now, Obviously, governments don't always do that, right? We can see uh, there are places in America where that doesn't happen. The, I don't know if you guys saw in the news, the, the owner of Starbucks is closing a bunch of stores in major American cities. Excuse me, because according to him, it's too, it's too unsafe to operate those stores because of crime or either get mugged going into the store or the store gets robbed or for whatever reason, it's unsafe to operate those stores. Okay, so government is not fulfilling its baseline function. And what happens? Guys, there's people that work at those, uh, work at those stores that are out of a job. There's tax revenue that's not being collected. There's people that own those buildings that are not getting rents. So it's not just that this happens in a vacuum. This happens and it affects people. It affects image bearers. This is a very real cost to government not doing its baseline function. Okay, government can go the other way and can exceed its mandate as well, right? Um, And we see that a lot of times as well. If you guys are probably familiar with the, the case of Jack Phillips with Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado, right? So was approached by a gay couple to make a custom wedding cake for them, and he refused based on conscience. He said, I will sell you a pre-made wedding cake. I'm not refusing you service, uh, but I can't use my God-given talents to do something that I don't believe in. And the Colorado, was it the Colorado Commission on Human Rights, was that right? Okay, uh, went after him. Okay, well, that's an example of government exceeding its mandate, exceeding its authority, right? Because government doesn't have any authority, any God-given authority to bind somebody's conscience or to tell somebody what they should believe. Right? Government's not in the business of adjudicating truth. It can't. All right? So government can exceed its mandate 
as well. And the reason I bring these up is because we have to understand that this, we have, we have a clash of worldviews, and this is part of the reason that we have some of this political acrimony, right? Because there are a group of people, I'm not gonna call names, there are a group of people that believe that in order to get a just, diverse, inclusive society, that you have to use government coercion. And that if we just do that, people will, will have this society that everybody wants, right? Well, government has no ability to change hearts and minds. Government can coerce behavior, but you don't change people's hearts and minds. But that's the worldview that they operate from, so when that doesn't happen, everybody loses their mind, and what happens? You want to put more government force, and you're still not changing hearts and minds. By contrast, we should understand that the real work of achieving justice or the real work of achieving anything is by changing hearts and minds. And government has a limited ability, almost a non-existent ability to do that. So, so for the Christian, the Christian, what do we want? We want people to come to faith in Christ. We want people to grow in Christ, right? Well, that's, that doesn't happen by government dictate or government, um, or government function. Government should provide a safe environment so that we can share the gospel and we can spread the good news. But we should never put more faith in government to do what it can't do. Um, yeah, see, you guys, are, you guys are reaping the effect of my wrestling with the octopus, right? Because I, I am all over the place. Um, so let me, see, let, me, let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. And I want to use the value them both amendment to talk about this, Okay. So we can, we've, we've been talking about the value them both amendment, and I want you to vote for it. I want you to go, you can start voting, early voting tomorrow. So I want you to go do that. Okay, so we can and we should participate in the political process as a means of loving our neighbor and as a means of promoting the common good. We can and should do that. That's, that's good and that's right, and we should do those things. So, as regards to the value them both amendment, right, we've told you that we want you, want you to vote because if we don't, if we don't pass the amendment, then we're in a position where abortion will be legal at any stage of development. There will be essentially no restrictions on abortion, okay? Now, we can talk about does the amendment go, not go far enough? Should there be a total ban? Was the court decision legitimate? I don't want to get into any of that because that's not the reality that we're in. The reality that we're in is the Supreme Court of Kansas has said that there's an unlimited right to abortion in the state. And the only way to get to a point where we can reverse that and enact some kind of law, a ban, God willing, right, is to pass this amendment. So we can't, we can't get... We can't get to the, to the end of the race if we don't get to the starting point. The amendment, passing the amendment is just a starting point, okay? So if you have questions about the amendment, actually Chris and Kent have offered to, to talk to anybody afterwards. So again, go vote on, on August 2nd or earlier. Having said all that, it would be a serious mistake 
to assume that that's the end, right? Because the goal for all of us should be to make abortion unthinkable. And the way we do that is even if we get a total ban on abortion, which God, God, please, we get a total ban on abortion, right? That there will be people that leave the state to get abortions. The way we make abortion unthinkable is we change hearts and we change minds. There's something the state can't do. And the way we do that is we give our time and we give our talent and we give our treasure to support agencies or people who are supporting women in crisis pregnancies, right? So as a, as a church, we support Lifeline Children's Ministry. My wife and I have been involved with that organization since we came to Topeka 10 years ago? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's time to move. Okay, so no, that's not a knock on you guys, but so for people that have moved every three years, this is like the longest place we've ever lived. Maybe we'll sell the house or something. Yeah. No, we're not selling the house either. Um, but so we should, you know, ministries like Lifeline, they're on the front lines of this fight, and we should do what we can to support them. We support them as a church. We should, should, should excuse me, support them as individuals. Okay, so right now, they have a program where you can mentor mothers who want to parent their kids or mothers who either are expectant mothers or who have children already and are kind of in a, at risk mothers. There's a program where you can go and mentor them. Uh, my wife and I did it. We had a couple for a short period of time. All right, that's something that we should be doing. They should never lack for resources to do what they need to do. Some of us should adopt, all right? Not everybody can do that, but some of us should. Some of us should adopt. Um, and then if we can't adopt, we should support those who do adopt, right? It's expensive to adopt. That's one of the, that's one of the main barriers to adoption. Well, if I can't adopt, I can, I can write a check. I can give money to people who can. We should be doing those things. We should be walking alongside people who are in crisis pregnancies who want to parent, maybe, or who are confused about parenting or want to adopt. We, sh we, should, we should roll up our sleeves and we should walk with people who are facing difficult choices. And that's how we get to the point where abortion is unthinkable. Because we've changed hearts and we've changed minds. Okay, that was a digression. I apologize for that, so. All right. So, returning to our discussion about politics um, and government. So I wanna talk about what duties do we have to government? And particularly what what duties do we have to a government that is maybe not living up to what it should be doing? So 1 Timothy 2 says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good. And it pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So our first duty to government is to pray. 
Right? So it's the first thing we can do, and actually it's the best thing we can do. Because who changes hearts and minds? Who directs the courses of kings? God does, right? So as I'm studying this week, I, w- I was immediately convicted by these verses. Okay? Because um, I can get behind prayers, I can get behind petitions, I can get behind supplications, but Paul tells Timothy, thanksgivings. And so immediately, yeah, <laughs> I see Paulette's coming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm immediately convicted, right? Thanksgiving for government authorities. That's, that's a tough sell for me sometimes, if I'm being completely honest. Hopefully you guys are all better than I am, right? But that can be a, t- that can be a hard sell. And so then I think about it. And I'm like, you know, as crazy as things are here, um, things largely function as they're supposed to. We live in a fairly orderly society, okay? So a lot of you have had your yard signs stolen, which is not a good thing, right? But we've had a district attorney who says that's against the law and has come out pretty forcefully to say that's against the law. Um, we, we don't live in the type of chaos that there is in Latin America, just not too far from us in Haiti. We don't live in those kinds of conditions. We don't live in a society like Nigeria. We talked about that last week, right, where you can get blown up for going to church. We don't live in that kind of society. So as crazy as things are here, we don't have it that bad. And so we can be thankful. We can be thankful for that. Thankful for small mercies, right? Isn't that the phrase? Uh, and then, I, then God brings to mind Romans 13, where he says, no authority exists except by God and those that were instituted by God. So in a sense, when I'm thanking, when I'm expressing thankfulness for the authorities, I'm expressing thankfulness to God because of what he's provided. And so it's easy to look, look behind whatever that authority is to express thankfulness to God. It makes it easier, anyway. Not perfect, but easier. Okay. I thought about having the, having the sound guys play the theme to Jaws when I talk about submission, right? Because <laughs> it's like dangerous waters you're getting into. Dun, 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 dun. Um, we have a duty to submit to authority. We have a duty to submit to authority. Now, let me caveat by saying that Jesus-loving people can and do disagree, sometimes forcefully, on the extent and the interpretation of the verses to submit. Jesus-loving people can and do disagree on what it means to submit. All right, we've, and, and my aim today is not to settle that debate or rather just to maybe give us some principles that we can think about. So the Greek term that's translated submit in both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 is hupotasso. And in most cases, not all, but in most cases, it means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of another so that you obey their commands or directives. So we have some agency on whether or not we obey. 
there, there are some times we should obey, there are some times we should not. The conflict comes in in interpreting those times where we shouldn't. Paul is saying in verse 2, um, he says we should be careful about how we exercise that agency. We should be thoughtful about how we exercise that agency because he says this, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. So we have some agency but we want to be careful about how we exercise that agency. Okay, so we're going to talk about what exceptions, which is probably what you guys really want to talk about. But let me make a, a little bunny trail, or follow a little bunny trail. Okay, submission is not contingent on the goodness or the rightness of the authority being submitted to. It's not contingent on the goodness or the rightness of the authority being submitted to. In fact, um, so we've said that Romans and First Peter were written to a church that was under Nero, right? A, a very despotic ruler. In fact, Peter double, is going to double down in his epistle on the command to submit because he's going to tell Christian slaves to submit to good masters and to bad. Don't only submit to good masters, submit to bad ones. As you say, it brings favor from God when we endure unjust treatment at the hands of authority. Because when we do that, we imitate Christ's suffering, who also suffered at the hands of unjust authority. Right? So, one of the things that's brought to my mind is I mentioned the case of Jack Phillips earlier, right? Well, Jack Phillips sued on, to protect his religious liberty. And according to Peter, is that an unbiblical? Was that unbiblical? Should he have not? sued all right and i don't think it was I don't, I don't think it was unbiblical i think that's permitted and the reason i say that is because if we go back to romans 13 god institutes authority god institutes particular governments well god has instituted a government for us that we live under where we have the right to petition for redress we have the right to sue the government right so those are legal means that God has provided for us to use. So there's nothing wrong with using those means. Now, if we lived in somewhere where we didn't have that right, then maybe that's a different story. But I don't think it's wrong to use legal means, peaceful legal means, to resist authority when it encroaches on things. I also don't think that it's necessarily necessary to do that. So there may be times where the right thing to do for conscience or the right thing to do for a witness is to be defrauded, is to be taken advantage of. Right? So I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think you sin if you do, and I don't think you sin if you don't. I think there's liberty. I don't think we're required to, but I don't think it's wrong to not. Okay? So that was a bunny trail for me. You guys are probably like, I don't care. Let's talk about when can I disobey civil authority. Okay, the, the easy cases are when a, an authority 
commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands. Right? When the civil authority says, do this that God has said, don't do, or says, don't do this, which God has said, do, then we have an obligation to disobey civil authority. So there's several examples in Scripture. The Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh's order to kill all the male Hebrew children. Right? They did that because that would have violated God's command not to kill. Daniel disobeyed the king's orders to only, worship, uh, to only pray to him because that would have violated God's command to worship the Lord your God and him only. We talked about Peter and John last week in Acts 5. Peter and John disobeyed the Sanhedrin's orders not to preach in this name because that was clearly a violation of God's command, Christ's command, to go and make disciples. So those are all easy. Those are all easy, right? The, the problem is when there's a gray area. So what do we do when there's not a clear biblical command to appeal to? All right? Well, in that case, you get counsel. You got godly counsel. Right? There's wisdom and an abundance of counselors. You pray. And then you can appeal to conscience. God gave us, God gave us a conscience that is informed by the Holy Spirit. And when you're in an area where it's gray, where it's not clear, you can appeal to conscience. So Martin Luther, the reformer, not the civil rights activist, when he was commanded to recant his views on salvation, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. If something violates your conscience, don't do it. Don't do it. It's neither right nor safe to violate your conscience. Now, you and I can disagree on your exercise of conscience. So I may exercise my conscience, and you may disagree with that. Well, Romans 14 kicks in at that point, uh, which I'm paraphrasing here, but says, you have no right to judge my use of conscience in, an, in, a, in a disputed matter, right? If there's something that's clearly in Scripture then all bets are off. But in a disputed matter, you have no right to uh, constrain my conscience or, or to judge my use of it, and I have no right to judge yours or to constrain your conscience. Because Paul says, the one that you're going to answer to is Christ. You're going to give an account to God, not to me. So if you get to the judgment and Christ says, well, you shouldn't have done that, that's between you and, you and Jesus. Okay? So, we have a duty to submit. If we can't, it's a gray area, then we can use our conscience. This, I think, is a little bit harder. So, we have, we have a duty to pray, we have a duty to submit, but we also have a duty to honor. So, in verse 7, Romans 13, Paul's us, Paul tells us we should have respect to those we owe respect and honor to whom we owe honor. Just like offering Thanksgiving, that's sometimes a hard sell for me, if I'm being completely honest. But David is a great example of this. So if you read in the Old Testament, First, Second Samuel, and Chronicles, 
You know, Saul's chasing David all up and down the wilderness. And at one point, God has already said, I'm going to reject Saul. So Saul's not a good king. And, and David has several opportunities to kill Saul. And what does he say in each one of them? He says, I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. I'm not going to raise my hand against God's anointed. And in fact, when an Amalekite brings him news of Saul's death and lies about it and says, I killed Saul, what does David do? David kills him. Because he says, you raised your hand against God's anointed. Right? Saul wasn't a good guy. Saul wasn't a good king. He had been rejected by God. But David honored Saul because Saul was God's anointed. And until God removed Saul, David was going to show honor and respect. And we can do the same thing. Right? It's kind of like in the military. You salute the rank, not the person. You salute the rank, not the person. So we need to show honor. All right, this might be stretching the text a little bit, and if it is, I hope that you'll forgive me. So it's not just political authority that we need to show honor. Maybe honor is not the right word. Uh, we live in such a polarized society that, I don't know if the statistic is old, but I found it, and almost a third of people so a third of people on the left and a third of people on the right view the other side as not just misguided, but as evil. As evil, as enemies. A third, that's a lot of people, a third of Americans view the other side as not just misguided, not that I just disagree with you, but you're evil and you're out to get me. You're my enemy. All right? It seemed like a crazy statistic to me. So we, and I have been guilty of this, right? So just confession time. I was listening, or I was reading some comments by a senator from the Northeast. Um, I will not name names. Um, but anyway, it was about crisis pregnancy centers. You guys can figure out who I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, as I'm reading these comments, my blood is just, I think my head is about to explode and go through the roof, right? And just like the person who vandalized the sign that I had to go fix last week, right? My first thought is, yeah, I won't tell you what my first thought is. Uh, you can guess. Yeah, my second thought. Yeah. Actually, it was about my fifth thought was, uh, yeah. Yeah, my fifth thought was, well, wait a minute. No, this person, this person doesn't know Christ. This person doesn't know Christ. And, and, and then I go to the Sermon on the Mount, right? And what does Jesus say about my enemies? So even if this person is my enemy, let's concede that this person is my enemy. This person is out to get me. This person hates me. What, what does Jesus say about my enemies? More conviction right? Love your enemies. Why? So that you'll be like your Father in heaven. Love your enemies so you'll be like your Father in heaven. I want to be like my Father in heaven. Anybody else? Yeah. So even if we concede 
that, let's concede the worst about these people. What is that, what is, what is required of us? Love, honor, respect. And guys, that is a powerful, powerful, powerful witness and testimony. When you respond to somebody who treats you poorly, who treats you like an enemy, when you respond in grace and mercy and love, they don't know what to do. They have no idea how to react to that. And it is a testimony to the life that is in us when we respond that way. When we act like our Heavenly Father. Okay, I want to wind down with this. And all God's people said amen, right? Get this guy off the stage. Um, Hey, many of us, and I'm including myself in this, right? We're way too invested in politics. Keeps us up at night. Gives us an upset stomach to think about. You you, you read the news, you look at the news, and and your blood pressure goes up. Uh, You're just waiting for the next crazy thing to come out of the, the woke left. Um, guys, that's just like obsessing over the culture. That's not a sustainable lifestyle. It's not. It's not good for you. So my advice to you and to me is stop. Stop. Okay? And I'm going to end the same way that I did last week. Right? So Paul says in Romans 8, he says, I don't consider, I'm paraphrasing, I don't consider the present troubles worth worrying about when I consider the glory that it's awaiting us. Guys, one day, one day the trumpet is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise and if we're still here and alive, we're going to join them in the air and we're going to meet Christ and we're going to be with him forever. And I 100% guarantee we are not going to be talking politics in heaven. All of that is going to be, it's going to be gone. It's going to be nothing. Lord Jesus, hasten that day. Hey, would you stand? And uh, we're going to read. Thank you for your patience today. We're going to read Paul's words from Philippians 3 with me. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself.